Hello, and welcome to this audio edition of Philip Pusher's program notes for upcoming concerts by the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. My name is Rich Caparella. Concerts by the CSO on Thursday, November 15th through Sunday the 18th feature guest conductor Thomas Sondergaard and pianist Alexander Gavriljuk. The program includes Nocturne and Ballade from King Christian II by Sibelius, Piano Concerto No. 1 by Tchaikovsky, and after intermission, Sergei Rachmaninoff's Symphony No. 1. Here are Philip Usher's program notes on the Tchaikovsky Piano Concerto No. 1, a work lasting about 33 minutes. In a famously wrong snap judgment, Nikolai Rubinstein said that Tchaikovsky's first piano concerto, a concerto the composer wanted him to play, was worthless and, in fact, unplayable. Rubinstein, the director of the Moscow Conservatory and normally an ardent champion of Tchaikovsky's works, he conducted the world premieres of the early symphonies and Romeo and Juliet, was not only the best pianist in Moscow, but also a first-rate all-round musician, Tchaikovsky later said, explaining why he had approached Rubinstein in the first place. Tchaikovsky met with Rubinstein at the Moscow Conservatory on December 24, 1874. After playing through the first movement, the composer was greeted with complete silence. If only you knew, he later wrote to Najda von Neck, what a foolish and unbearable situation it is to offer a friend a dish one has cooked oneself and to have that friend eat and say nothing. Undeterred, though clearly rattled, Tchaikovsky played on to the end of the concerto. Then Rubinstein didn't mince words, declaring that the concerto was impossible to play, that the passages were hackneyed, clumsy, and so awkward that there was no way even to correct them, that as a composition it was bad, vulgar. Except for two or three pages, Rubinstein ventured the score had to be completely redone. Angry and deeply wounded, Tchaikovsky left the room without responding. Later that evening, Rubinstein went to see him at home and, without softening his original appraisal, proposed that if the composer made numerous radical changes, he would reconsider performing it. Tchaikovsky replied, I will not change a single note and will publish it exactly as it is now. On January 9th, Tchaikovsky wrote to his brother Anatoly that he had fallen into a great depression over the holidays. There is no one here whom I might call a friend in the true sense of the word, he continued, pointedly referring to Rubinstein, whom until recently he had considered one of his closest friends, and he admitted that he was still recovering from the blow to his composer's pride. That winter, however, he sent the piano concerto to Hans von Bülow, a pianist and conductor best known for his championship of Wagner's music. He led the premieres of both Tristan und Isolde and Die Meistersinger. The ideas are so original, so noble, so powerful, Bülow wrote back, and the details so interesting. Though there are many of them, they do not impair the clearness and unity of the work. The form is mature, ripe, and distinguished in style. Although Bülow had retired from the concert stage during the 1860s, after his wife Cosima left him for Wagner, and had only recently resumed his career, he now became the dedicatee of the concerto and agreed to play the premiere of the work in Boston, where it was advertised as a grand concerto. To Boston is reserved the honor of its initial representation and the opportunity to impress the first verdict of a work of surpassing musical interest. 
the local announcement boasted, unaware that Rubinstein had already done so. The day after the premiere, Bulow sent what is thought to have been the first cable ever dispatched from Boston to Moscow, telling Tchaikovsky of the concerto's undisputed triumph with the Boston public. The concerto has been overwhelmingly popular ever since, and in 1941, it even inspired a hit song, Tonight We Love, which was rather unscrupulously hacked from its broad opening phrases. The concerto's celebrated introduction with its radiant string melody riding over the piano's thunderous chords is both its best-known and most puzzling concept. After a dramatic horn call, Tchaikovsky establishes the wrong key of D-flat major and then introduces a theme so splendid, so complete, and so satisfying as it stands that despite audience expectations, it will never return. Although this makes for a potentially lopsided design with the most familiar music over before the concerto proper begins, Tchaikovsky's subsequent material is of such dazzling color, flair, and orchestral brilliance that the remainder of the score is not a letdown, even after such a breathtaking opening chapter. The main body of the first movement, it begins with nervous, jumping passage work, introduces a clarinet melody Tchaikovsky said he heard played by an itinerant musician at a local fair. This is a large, finely detailed movement filled with characteristic Tchaikovskyan touches like the barrages of quadruple octaves in the piano solo and capped by an expansive cadenza. The remaining two movements are brief in comparison. The Andantino is part slow movement, part scherzo. It's all lightness and effortless charm. The main theme of the playful midsection is based on Il faut s'amuser et rire, laugh and enjoy yourself, a chanson associated with Belgian soprano Desiree Artaud, whom Tchaikovsky courted in the late 1860s and at least for a few days even thought of marrying. The finale includes a Russian dance derived from a Ukrainian melody and ends with a majestic coda that manages to match the grandeur and sweep of the concerto's opening without once recalling its main theme. A postscript on first impressions, it didn't take long for Nikolai Rubinstein to admit his mistake, and shortly after the premiere, he began to play the concerto with great success. Quote, What was impossible in 1875 became thoroughly possible in 1878, Tchaikovsky observed. He quickly became a celebrated interpreter of the work, and the composer and the pianist-conductor renewed their friendship. After Rubinstein's death in 1881, Tchaikovsky composed a piano trio in his honor and dedicated it to the memory of a great artist. Program notes by Philip Huscher on Tchaikovsky's Piano Concerto No. 1. And now on to the Rachmaninoff Symphony No. 1, the work lasting about 41 minutes. Rachmaninoff would have become famous even if he had done nothing but play the piano, but his true aspiration was to become a composer. At the Moscow Conservatory, his teacher, Nikolai Zverev, encouraged him to stick to the piano instead of writing music and resented his taking composition classes with Sergei Taneyev and Anton Arensky. After Rachmaninoff tried his hand at composing some piano pieces, he even started an opera, Esmeralda, he realized that he was unable to choose between composition and performance, and so... He ultimately decided to pursue both. 
eventually, by the way, becoming a fine conductor as well. In 1889, the year he and Zverev parted ways, he sketched and abandoned a piano concerto, but the one he began the following year is his first major work, the one that became his Opus One. This is the score that sealed his fate as a composer, and it was completed in a rush of passion and elation, with Rachmaninoff working from five in the morning until eight in the evening and scoring the last two movements in just two and a half days. Rachmaninoff played the first movement with orchestra in a concert of student works at the conservatory in March 1892. He played it with the Chicago Symphony when he made his debut in Orchestra Hall on December 3, 1909, the first of his eight performances with the orchestra. Rachmaninoff quickly began to draw attention as a composer. The brooding piano prelude in C-sharp minor he composed in 1892 at the age of 19 immediately became the calling card of a young artist's dreams and eventually a burden as well. Audiences would not let him leave the stage until he played the work, a work he eventually referred to dismissively as it. In 1893, Tchaikovsky, who was already impressed with Rachmaninoff's talent, interrupted work on his final symphony, The Patatique, to attend the premiere of Rachmaninoff's first opera, Aleko, based on Pushkin's poem, The Gypsies. But the real mark of a 19th century composer was the symphony. And so, at the age of 22, and in the same decade as Tchaikovsky's Patatique, Brahms Fourth, Sansons Organ, Mahler's First, Bruckner's Eighth, and Dvorak's New World, Rachmaninoff set out to write a symphony. In truth, he had already tested the waters. First, with an orchestral scherzo he wrote at the age of 13, then with an allegro composed shortly after his first piano concerto. He was now ready to join the company of the great romantic symphonist. And as he began his new symphony in D minor, he was filled with excitement and assurance. Work went well, ideas came to him swiftly, and his enthusiasm did not wane. But with the premiere of his first symphony in St. Petersburg, 1897, under the baton of composer Alexander Glazunov, Rachmaninoff's confidence and momentum, if not his entire career, suddenly seemed to fizzle. The performance must have been appalling. Rachmaninoff called it the most agonizing hour of my life. He hid in a stairwell with his hands over his ears. Glazunov was later said to have been drunk when he walked on stage. And the opening night review by composer César Cui, the only member of the so-called Russian Five, whose music is never performed today, could hardly have been worse. The symphony, Cui concluded, would have brought ecstasy to the inhabitants of hell. The audience response was scarcely warmer, though many listeners that night may have suspected what Rachmaninoff had already learned the hard way, that for all his prestige in Russian musical circles, Glazunov was a lousy conductor. How could so great a musician as Glazunov conduct so badly? Rachmaninoff later asked. It is not even a question of his conducting technique, poor as that is, but of his musicianship. He beats time as if he had no feeling for music at all. Nevertheless, the damage had been done, and Rachmaninoff could not recover his nerve or his musical ambitions. Much later, he recalled, the despair that filled my soul would not leave me. My dreams of a brilliant career 
lay shattered. My hopes and confidence were destroyed. Rachmaninoff withdrew the symphony and refused to have it published, as if suppressing the score would also erase the memory. For the next three years, he wrote nothing. Sketches for a new symphony were abandoned, and work on an opera, Francesca da Rimini, was shelved. He continued to perform and even undertook a concert tour to London in 1898, but day after day he found that he was unable to compose. As he grew more despondent, his friends began to recommend various remedies. Twice he visited Leo Tolstoy, once by himself and once with the bass, Fyodor Shalyapin, hoping that contact with the great novelist would shake him out of his slump and jumpstart his creativity. But the writer's self-serving platitudes discouraged him even more. You must work, Tolstoy told him. I work every day. When he and Shalyapin performed one of Rachmaninoff's songs, Tolstoy wasted no words in conveying how much he disliked it. Finally, fearing that Rachmaninoff was trapped in a serious depression, his family suggested that he consult Dr. Nikolai Dahl, a Paris internist who had become a specialist in curing alcoholism through hypnosis. At the end of 1899, after months of almost daily sessions, Rachmaninoff was again able to face the challenge of writing a large-scale orchestral work, and he began a new piano concerto. But even with the wild success of his second piano concerto, one of the most popular and beloved works in the form, the idea of composing a symphony still haunted and terrified him. When he did unveil a second symphony ten years after the first, Rachmaninoff swore it would be his last. And then, 28 years later, he started work on the third symphony that did in fact turn out to be the final one of his career. The four movements of Rachmaninoff's first symphony are unified by a single idea introduced immediately after the slow introduction to the first movement that echoes the shape of the dies irae, the familiar phrase from the sequence for the Gregorian Mass for the Dead that would recur in several of Rachmaninoff's most important works over the years, including The Isle of the Dead, which, by the way, the Chicago Symphony performs at the end of March and explores in greater depth in Beyond the Score. Each of the subsequent movements opens with a reference to this motto. The second movement, Scherzo, is fleet and light-footed. The expansive larghetto is the prototype of the great slow movements in the symphonies and concertos yet to come. The finale is grand, festive, occasionally flamboyant, and sometimes menacing, and here Rachmaninoff's signature melody comes closest to actually quoting the Dies Irae theme. The entire score is strong, highly individual, and self-assured. It is the work of a young talent overflowing with ideas, not an artist paralyzed by failure. Although Rachmaninoff never destroyed his score of the First Symphony, leaving it behind when he left Russia to settle in the West, eventually it was given up for lost. After the composer's death, a two-piano transcription of the symphony surfaced in Moscow, followed by a set of orchestral parts at the Conservatory in St. Petersburg. In March 1945, the symphony was performed in Moscow for the first time since its 1897 premiere. The Chicago Symphony Orchestra played it for the first time in February 2010. Program notes by Philip Pusher on Rachmaninoff's Symphony No. 1. My name is Rich Caparella. Thanks for listening.